This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Listener friends, as 2021 comes to a close, I want to thank all of you for supporting this podcast, which features innovative educators from across the Hawaiian Islands. Our destination is a thousand points of light. The wind is fully in our sails, and we are still firmly fixed on the North Star that is student-driven, real-world, joyful teaching and learning. Speaking of a thousand points of light, my guest today is Darcy Ann Baker, a very special educator at the Kamehameha Schools Hawaii Island Campus in Keaau. Kamehameha Schools is a private school system in Hawaii established under the terms of the will of Princess Bernice Pawahi Bishop. The Kamehameha Schools consists of three campuses and 30 preschools educating over 7,000 young people of Hawaiian ancestry on Maui, Oahu, and Hawaii Island. Darcy Ann is a native Hawaiian woman born and raised in Hawaii. Her entire career has been dedicated to the perpetuation of the Hawaiian language. It is an endeavor she has held close to her heart ever since she found her Hawaiian identity when she was 15 years old. For the past 30 years, she has taught Hawaiian language at different levels and in different contexts, from preschool, through the university level, at adult night school, and even in the prison system. Recently, Darcian, known as Kumu Lenani, stepped out of the classroom to become her campus's K-12 Hawaiian language coach. Her two main responsibilities in this current position are to help to transform the Hawaiian language program to best prepare students to be successful on their Hawaiian language proficiency graduation requirements. This includes rewriting the Kamehameha School's Hawaii Island Campus's K-12 curriculum, coaching teachers through new research-based strategies and modeling, innovative teaching, and co-teaching with proficiency as the focus. Makahana Kaike, in doing is learning. And now, here's my conversation with Darcy Baker. Darcy, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Aloha, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Good. It's going to be fun. 
So Darcy, at Kamehameha School's Hawaii Island campus, you are currently working to revamp your K-12 Olala Hawaii or Hawaiian language program. Yes. What's, what's the difference between learning about language and doing the work of communicating in a language? It's a huge shift. As a Kumu, like a lot of us grew up or learned the language by learning the grammar, memorizing vocabulary, learning patterns, substituting words. We knew a lot about the language. And I can recall when I was first learning language as a junior in high school, I was great. I could write everything, but I couldn't speak it. I mean, you asked me to write a paragraph and I could I could just jot it all down. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the, the Kumu asked me to to speak, I was mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, <laughs> really trying to think through what is that pattern that I'm supposed to be using. And so when we when we're revamping our program, we're moving toward a proficiency model where it's more important that the students learn to communicate using the language than to memorize vocabulary, memorize patterns and all of the grammar, Olelo. And so, you know, our the revamp really is shifting toward that the communication part, which is it's been a really hard shift for teachers, first of all, because we went through school thinking about accuracy. Everything had to be accurate because if it wasn't, you got that red mark on the paper. Mm-hmm. You were told that it was wrong and you had to fix it because if it's wrong, you're saying something different. So as teachers, it's really difficult to allow your students to make those mistakes and be okay with it. For students, that's also a big shift for them because they also feel that everything has to be correct. Is that right, Kumu? Is that right? But really trying to emphasize to them that communication is what we're trying to shoot for. We'll get the accuracy later, but communicate. And then one of the examples that I always like to use is think about our, you know, Japanese tourists, because that's what we, you know, we can relate to here in Hawaii. We have a lot of Japanese tourists. And when you listen to them, their English is not accurate. Their pronunciation is not accurate. But can you understand them? Mm. And that's a big eye opener, I think, for us as teachers and and for our students. Mm. You know, Darcy, when I was in middle school and I guess in high school, my my language experience was miserable. <laughs> I mean, it was you know it was so traditional, and it was exactly as you describe. It was a lot of memorization of certain kinds of rules, and then um, and I did not do well because I I didn't have a great short term memory, and it was very frustrating to me. And then later, when I was an, an adult, and I was actually getting finishing up my undergrad at University of Iowa, I was in a Spanish class, and I was having the same problem. And so I dropped it and I took Latin. And then the whole thing shifted for me because that class and learning Latin was all about translation. And so we would read through the actual primary sources of, you know, Virgil and Caesar and and Cicero and and have to translate it. And it was miraculous for me. All of a sudden I was having mm. a wonderful time exploring language and figuring out the ways that language 
might affect my own ability to write in English, right? How Latin was mm-hmm. changing that. <laughs> and I wonder if that's similar to what you're talking about. Is that a, am, am I on the right track in, in saying that something happened in, in that switch from that traditional to doing Latin in the way that we were doing it? I want to say yes. I'm not 100% convinced that translation is the way, but mm. there's something that happens. It's a motivational thing. Mm. So students will be motivated when they can find success. Mm. So you might have found success in translation. Yeah, I did. Other students might feel success in saying something and having the teacher agree or disagree or just understanding, you know, Mm. indication of understanding. And that might be their success. Mm -hmm. What we've been really trying to emphasize with teachers is really using learning targets and making the learning targets pretty specific. So, you know, bringing up the learning target at the beginning of the class and really making it evident for the students, making it visible and saying, by the end of this class, I will be able to do A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of class, really checking back to say, did you learn A, B, and C? Can you do those things? Mm. Did you evidence it today? And going through those learning targets is one of those things that we are hoping that students will find motivation in. Yeah, got it. Finding that success. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's so many different angles to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back to the learning targets part in a little bit here, but I want to share with you that I live each day, and maybe I'm being overly dramatic here, but with with some regrets about my teaching, most especially that in some cases at Punahou and Iolani schools, I taught history in the quote traditional way, meaning direct instruction, a ton of homework and traditional tests and papers. And my students exited my classes able to recite the facts of history more or less, but very few of them had become trained historians. So you wrote to me that once you learned and understood the proficiency approach to language, you felt similar regrets. So I would love to hear you explain this in greater detail, including the moment, Darcy, when proficiency as a pedagogical practice showed up on your radar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I live with that regret every day. I think about the thousands of students that have gone through mm-hmm. my classes. And I I mean, there's a part of me that, you know, I feel I feel guilty, but then also I feel like I did the best that I could with what I knew. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of that balance. And and it a lot of this has to do with just me as a reflective educator. Mm-hmm. And I've been told before by my admin that, that I'm super reflective. And that every year I'm I'm trying to think, how can I do this better? How can I do this better? And I'm always changing. And at one point, I was told, you need to settle on something, Dars. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm always trying to see, that, did I do the best that I could do? And my answer is always, I did, but I can always do better. You know, I taught at the university for 13 years. Mm-hmm. While I was there, I mean, the university is where the grammatical structures was actually, uh, I shouldn't say the grammatical, <laughs> grammatical structures were born, but how it was laid out and explained was actually conceived there at the university. Mm-hmm. And so I learned from those people who put that together and explained the grammar part. And so, you know, for 13 years, I knew what I was doing and I could explain it, you know, very clearly, 
to my students and those who got it really got it well. In fact, can I tell you a story? Yeah. I have a student, a former student. She's from Japan. She's Korean, raised in Japan. And she came to my class and she almost dropped my class because there were, you know, local students in the class who, when I asked what Hawaiian words did you know, they could rattle them off, right? Haupia, laola, aloha, and all of those things. And they would sit there, the Japanese students would sit there and go, oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong class. Hmm. Well, these Japanese students have discipline, right? When they're in, in school. And they did so well, memorizing and translations and all grammar. But she she told me, she graduated with a master's degree in Hawaiian. And she's back in Japan right now. And she just wrote to me like about a week ago, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. She said, everything that you've ever given me for homework. And I taught her from 101, or was it 107? But from the very first classes... She said, everything, every worksheet, everything that you've ever given me, I still have. Mm. She said, I keep it. And it's like a Bible to me. Mm. She said, the foundation that you've given me is so strong. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Because I'm thinking, oh, I did it wrong all of those years. Mm. But, you know, there are some students who really thrive on that kind of grammar. And then some students that just don't. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, it was it was like the luck of the draw. Like, well, you did well. Sorry, you guys didn't do well. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the guilt that I feel like I should have been able to hit more students, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that I was really hurting those other students. There's another student from my hometown on Kauai. And, you know, he was my my sister's classmate. So he's maybe 10 years younger than me. But I forgotten that I had him as a student. And my sister visited him this summer. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember your sister's class. And I was like, oh, that's right. I did have him as a student. And he's still bitter to this day <laughs> that he got a 91 mm. when he needed a 92 to get a better grade. Yeah. And he's like, and your sister wouldn't give it to me. And I was like, you earned that. <laughs> right? but, yeah. but, you know, this, it's those stories that I think, oh, my gosh, how much did I hurt mm. and how much did I help? And was there a particular moment that you remember where the proficiency model showed up for you? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Yes. So that happened probably, let's see, I went to an ACTFL conference in 2017. Mm-hmm. And ACTFL is the American Council for the Teaching of Foreign Language. And I remember going to these sessions and listening to these teachers making that shift. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Wow. We've been doing it wrong all this time. Mm-hmm. So I went back to, when I went back to school, I, I, I stopped our headmaster, our po'o kula. And I said, we've been doing it wrong all these years. And her eyes lit up and she looked at me and she says, I've been waiting for somebody to discover that. Because she had figured it out. But I guess she didn't want to be the hammer from up above to say, hey, you guys mm-hmm. got to shift and this is how I want you to do it. Mm-hmm. And so she she was so excited when she saw that, that the light went on for me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where things 
started rolling for me, mm. they recognized that I saw that there's a better way to do it. Wow, that's such oh. a great story. <laughs> I had I had a similar, you know, road to Damascus conversion moment when I was I started teaching at Punahou and it was pretty traditional. But then when I went to La Pietra, which frankly was better, you know, in terms of a conversion because I had much smaller classes. And so I, I had that that privilege of being able to do that. But there was a moment where as a history teacher, you sort of discover what it means to dig into the primary sources and have kids mm -hmm. begin to discover history for themselves. Um, and so I, I know I know what that moment is like. Um, and so kind of along the same line, Starcy, I, I know this sounds wacky, but I don't think we spend enough time talking about our feelings as educators. So if, if feelings emanate from the heart, what does it feel like to work with kids in a language proficiency setting? Like, how does it feel different to teach about a language as opposed to training kids, as you do, to communicate in Ulela Hawaii, in the Hawaiian language? How does it feel different? Wow. So as a backstory, mm -hmm. from 2017, when I discovered that we were doing it wrong, I immediately changed what I was doing in the classroom. And I decided that I am going to just speak Hawaiian to these students. And I remember that first year, it was uh, 20, 2017, 2018. I think that was that year. And I had been, the, the, I'd spent the whole summer kind of looking like, how do you do this? How do you do that? Of course, realistically, you can't figure that out on your own in a summer. Okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like I said, you know, we, you do the best you can with what you have. So what I did that year, I remember it was so funny. It was like, I'm going to teach these kids in Hawaiian and they're going to be like so shocked, but I don't want to scare them. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I want them to understand that you don't need to know every single Hawaiian word to be able to understand me. Yeah, you don't need to know what pattern I'm doing. You don't need to know all the vocabulary. Just watch me and you'll get it. And so there was this one strategy I read online and I'm like, I'm going to do this. And what it was is, you, you know, on the first day, you don't say a word. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say a word, but you have them do an activity. And all you're doing is miming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought I'd take it one more step and make it a little more dramatic. And I put duct tape, green duct tape, bright green duct tape across my face. Wow. <laughs> and, and they looked at me and they were like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> I introduced myself, wrote it on the board, pointed to myself. Um, and then I actually, this is really interesting. I had them introduce themselves mm -hmm. by writing their names on the board and everything. I was just showing them what to do and they were following. They made name tags, name tents for their table. I had them make name tags for open house. So they needed to take pictures, write their names on it, poke holes in it, you know, tie the string, put it in their folder for their advisory. We did all of that with no speaking. Mm. And at the end of class, I ripped off the duct tape and I said, okay, so you understood everything I said, but I didn't speak a word. And I said, yeah, we just watched you give instructions and we just followed. I said, great, because next time you come to class, I'm only going to speak Hawaiian and you're not going to understand everything. Wow. But all you need to do is follow and you'll be fine. Wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's an amazing activity. <laughs> 
to make that point, right? To make yeah. that point. Yeah. And then they weren't afraid. The next day they weren't afraid. They It was shocking because mm-hmm. they couldn't understand, but they knew that if they just watched and they followed mm-hmm. that they would, they would get it. And I, that was, I remember that was my, they're going to be seniors next year, mm-hmm. but they were seventh graders and they, oh, they loved it. Mm-hmm. The students loved it. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking them along the way, I'm like, so what did you guys learn about Hawaiian? What kind of things that you did you pick up that I didn't teach you? Oh, we learned that ina means if, and this means this. And I'm like, how did you know? I never told you that. And so we just know, Kumu. Wow. I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. This yeah. is so much fun. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine there must have been a real range of emotions happening in that uh-huh, moment, you know, uh-huh. that it must have gotten, yes. you know, much more complex. I mean, sometimes I wonder that, yes. that in our classrooms, that there's only two emotions, either I'm getting it and I feel excited or I'm not getting it and I'm bummed out uh-huh. or anxious. Yeah. Um, and uh-huh. there must have been much more complex in that moment. Yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So kind of staying with the feelings concept, my nephew, mm-hmm. Evan Beachy, who works in strategy and transformation at Kamehameha Schools, described a moment walking and talking with you on your campus and suddenly coming up behind two teachers, both former students of yours, speaking in Hawaiian to each other. And Evan was very moved by your reaction, which I would love for you to share. Like, what were you feeling then? And do you still have those feelings today, 30 plus years into your transcendent teaching practice? which is now grounded so fully in proficiency. Like, what does it feel like when you see your students, especially in this case, because they were teachers, you know, Uh conversing, communicating naturally in Olala Hawaii? Well, the thing about, you know, teaching and especially teaching Olala Hawaii, because Olala Hawaii is very visible and audible, right? I mean, like, teaching science like i mean you're you're gonna see your successes if they become scientists right mm-hmm. but Olala hawaii they don't need to necessarily become hawaiian language teachers but you'll be able to know that you had some part in it and and as a kumu my reward isn't necessarily in the classroom mm. my reward will come years later and and having that feeling of knowing that your students have become fluent in Ola Hawaii. And you know that it didn't happen in your classroom, Mm. but that there was a seed that was planted. Mm -hmm. For me, that is just the most amazing feeling. I remember this one student coming back. She was probably from one of the first classes I taught at Kamehameha Schools. And she came back to, to visit on the campus maybe three or four years after she graduated and she's sitting there and having this conversation with me in Hawaiian. And I was just like, Oh, that is just so amazing. (laughs) I I mean, I'm like, Oh my God, we're sitting here having a conversation in Hawaiian. And, and that was the first time I'd ever had that with her, Mm. you know, because in my class, it wasn't like that. She wasn't at that point yet. And and as a seventh grade teacher, you will not have that necessarily. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they're in the beginning of their journey. Now, hopefully in our K twelve revamp on campus, by the time they come to me in seventh grade, if they started in elementary, they'll be we'll be doing it in Hawaiian. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. If they start in sixth grade, they might be dabbling, you know, and trying to get 
get their feet more into it. But really, this revamp is so exciting. Mm. And so... Oh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. You know, it's 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 so it's so cool because, you know, as I mentioned when I was teaching at La Pietra and I'd gone through that conversion and now I was training them to be historians rather than just filling them up with information like the tops of their heads came off and I would pour stuff in, you know, that was all gone, right? right. And and the kids and it was so much harder for them to to go through that process, but so much more rewarding. And I hear you when you say that, you know, the reward is later because for me, I had a number of students, I have a number of students who've gone on to become teachers. And Mm -hmm. the thing that's really exciting is not that they went on to become history teachers or be historians, but the fact that they picked up the methods that I was using my pedagogy in the classroom mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I, that I didn't anticipate I didn't know that at the time and then later you know they became uh, teachers and I and I saw the kind of practice they had and I was like oh my god they were actually picking up pedagogy in the classroom you know <laughs> it was like this is amazing just like you experienced so that's really yeah. cool so look back in in 1993 I wrote what amounted to a senior thesis at the University of Iowa Darcy I'm one quarter Welsh on my father's side so my research centered on the ways the Welsh people back in the late 1800s and early 1900s successfully fought to bring the Welsh language back after several centuries of British pressure to stamp it out and mm-hmm. you shared with me that your Hopes and dreams include like buying an outfit at Macy's or getting your driver's license renewed or doing a transaction at the bank in Hawaiian using Olele Hawaii. But it mm-hmm. seems the responsibility to make this happen lies as much with your thousands of students as with you. If they mm-hmm. demand such changes, then those kinds of changes will happen. And I wonder what your thoughts are about this. I do feel Kuleana. As far as you know, normalizing Olala Hawaii, and you know this, I've had this thought more strongly within the past year or so with this kurana of normalizing Olala Hawaii. And I know you know there's there are emerging schools that are doing their part to really bring the language back and and create more speakers. And I'm not I'm not thinking that I want to really tackle that it, even though the the work that I am doing is really to create more speakers but what I'm thinking about is how do I get those speakers now to connect mm-hmm. yeah I mean there's what is it like 20,000 people who speak Hawaiian yeah yet in our communities we don't hear it unless I hear maybe a mother speaking to her children or friends who know that each other speaks Hawaiian and that they're speaking to each other. But other than that, you don't hear it. It's not a normal thing. Mm-hmm. So how do I get to connect people? And and I don't know if it's not my kuleana, maybe, you know, because that's a huge responsibility. But I've been trying to brainstorm, like, how do I connect people? And I think I found a way. Mm. I'm not ready to share it, but I think I found a way (laughs) to do that and and really be able to connect people, strangers, Mm -hmm. to others who speak Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited because when this launches, I think it's going to be huge or or it might just bomb. I don't know. Mm -hmm. 
but I have this sense of kuleana. And I'm doing this mostly because there was a unit that I wrote and the unit was clothing, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the teachers shared with me that the students asked him, Kumu, why do we need to learn to ask how much that shirt costs? When are we ever going to walk into a store and ask the lady how much does the shirt cost? Mm. And and for me that was a, that was an aha moment. Mm. And I was like, you know what? He's right. He's not going to be able to walk into a store unless we do something. And that's when this all started. Like, mm. okay. And and somebody told me, Darcy, that's your kupuna talking to you mm. because I couldn't sleep. Honestly, I couldn't sleep. I was like, how do I do this? What am I supposed to do? And I was like kept up at night. I wake up like five every five minutes, going, "Oh, we could do this!" And I take out my computer and I'm mm-hmm. like typing. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a kuleana that I know that I have to do, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. be and on standby. <laughs> yes, I, we're, we're going to have to do another episode, Darcy, at some point down the line because we have to hear at some point, uh, you know, what this rollout is going to look and sound and feel like. So, yeah, that's great. So, hey everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will continue our conversation with Darcy Baker. Hi friends, Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Darcy Baker, a K 12 Hawaiian language coach at the Kamehameha Schools Hawaii Island campus in Keaau. So, Darcy, in this section, I want to dig deeper into pedagogy and your practice as a teacher and coach. Hoping, of course, that our listeners might be sparked by the insights you offer. So I want to move beyond the why and to more about the how. So you came into the Kealaula Professional Development Program thinking about ways to explore the use of space and classroom design in your teaching. But over time, I learned, you realized your teaching itself needed to change. So what sparked your interest in classroom space and design? And what realizations did you come to about your teaching practice as you thought about space and design? Oh, that's a great question. I think what sparked my interest in classroom design is just looking at what, I think it was like looking at my students' faces. 
mm-hmm. as they sat in their nice rows. Yeah. And I, I didn't like the idea of my students being passive recipients of my all knowing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wanted them to be more active participants in, in learning. And so Again, here comes this guilt part, right? Mm-hmm. How many years did I go through these, having my students in these nice little rows? And so I started exploring with just the tables because I only had tables in my room. And I had, I don't know if Evan told you, but I had this huge room. It was the hugest room on campus. It was large. And I was the envy of a lot of teachers because my classroom space was humongous. Mm-hmm. Then I started thinking, oh, what could I do with these spaces? I started going on to like Facebook Marketplace looking for cheap furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started spending some of my budget on beanbags and floor pillows. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I started taking desks away or moving them or out to the side so that my students would have more comfortable spaces and that it would feel more like a, I guess, like a home, mm-hmm. you know, where they would feel more comfortable in their learning. Of course, there was learning in that because some students got way too comfortable yes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. on a table. <laughs> Sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to get back on a table. <laughs> but there was a lot of learning in that. The students enjoyed it. I would give instruction kind of like elementary school. You know, you sit in the circle on the floor. Mm-hmm. We always took our shoes off, but we'd, I'd give instruction on the floor and say, you guys know what to do, go. And they could choose wherever they wanted to to go to learn. And of like I was saying, there's a lot of learning in that. Like I saw what didn't work, what worked. The kids gave me feedback. That was beautiful. But then... Like you said, yeah, your pedagogy has to change in order for that to happen. You can't have kids on beanbags and this, and then you're on the board explaining. That's why I needed to do that circle in front first. Here's, you know, I need to have your attention. This is what we're doing. This is what you need to, this is what we're learning. Mm-hmm. Now go. And, and I would have stations, you know, sometimes I'd have stations and they would independently go to those stations and do their, their learning there. Other times I would give them assignments and, you know, you go ahead and pick your most comfortable spot. Mm-hmm. And there was, of course, students who who chose the desks. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to be on a desk and other students wanted to lay down and mm-hmm. it was okay with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I, I went through, again, a similar experience when I, when I went from Punahou to La Pietra. That was the moment where I started to reconfigure my classroom. And since I was headed in the direction of in teaching history and also Hawaiian studies and economics of, of a more Socratic seminar approach, you know, that it was more discussion based, then almost immediately I had to convert the classroom into a different shape, which was more like a, you know, like a boardroom. You know, the kids were sitting around this board table having these mm-hmm. discussions. But later, when I was teaching at Iolani, I discovered something called the node chair. These they're expensive, but the concept oh, was yeah. is that you you know they roll and they do mm-hmm. all all sorts of other things. And just the very idea that that a desk or a student chair can be unhooked from the ground; it's not mm-hmm. bolted into the floor was magic. And we brought a bunch of them on campus. And I saw some teachers who taught in the traditional manner for decades. All of a sudden, they just, it was shocking. It was like they became symphony conductors, you know, and the kids were (laughs) moving around the room in these chairs. But to your point, 
lots of very complex and interesting things happen when you just take a small step and say, well, maybe it doesn't have to be the, the chairs all in a row, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Darcy, along the same lines, you've traveled to and spent time researching schools and programs in New Zealand and Singapore, among other places. Like what cool pedagogical ideas did you end up bringing back in your suitcase from those travels? (laughs) Oh, wow. My first trip to look at schools was with Kalaula and we went to San Francisco Mm -hmm. and we were able to see different schools. And I remember my focus, like you said, was on flexible learning spaces. Um, And we were able to see kind of like what I was trying to do in my classroom. And it, it just, it validated what I was trying to do. Gosh, we went to Singapore American school Mm -hmm. and it was just a quick five day trip. And my focus there was really on the language classes. And and that kind of helped to spark the changes that we are going through now. But I also did see flexible learning spaces there. And I thought, wow, I remember walking to a first first year Spanish class. It was middle school. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have any desks. Wow. (laughs) He had no desk. He had a big mat and he had different learning spaces. And I, I just stood there in awe. Mm. And, you know, this was before anybody on our campus had shifted. I was dabbling. People were, you know, my my colleagues were like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And very skeptical. But I I just remember all the pictures he had on the wall. I mean, you talk about the wall being a, a, a second teacher. Yeah. He was able to do that. And you didn't see any English. There was no translations. He had booklets, pamphlets, he had everything that was just, that was my dream class right there. Mm-hmm. And the students were, they were first year students, they were speaking in Spanish, they were working independently. Oh, it was just a dream. I remember walking into a second grade classroom, it was Spanish, and I remember these kids just speaking in Spanish, mm. and it wasn't an immersion class. Mm. I'm like, what? They come to you, what, three times a week? Mm. And they're in second grade and they're doing this? How did, and did they come to you with any Spanish background? No. How do you do this? And they were, you know, he had desks, but he also had that, that open floor space like I did. And I was like, okay, this can work. This really can work. My trip to New Zealand, when we went to look at schools, the focus there was really on culture-based learning. Yeah. How do you get the, the students to really connect to their culture and building up their identity as Maori students? Mm-hmm. I remember there thinking that the, the Maori culture is very widely accepted. And we went to a school where the students were not primarily Maori, mm-hmm. but we there was a welcome ceremony and they did haka. And I thought, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is that not as widely accepted in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. You know, why does Hawaiian kind of come across as, and my students show this, a touristy thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like if if I tell my students, you know, you know the word aloha, you know the word mahalo, 
just use them already, mm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But when they do that, they they kind of mimic this like, aloha, mm-hmm. and I'm like, why are you doing that? Because that's where they hear it. You know, they hear that this aloha spirit and the tourist industry, that's where it lives. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't live there. It needs to live with us, you know? Mm-hmm. And so going on this trip to New Zealand kind of emphasized that for me. Mm-hmm. Like, no, this this needs to live with us. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't belong to the tourist industry. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like, you know, what was one of the things that was going on in your travels is that you were coming to the realization and being sparked by the idea that there were there were a multiplicity of approaches and that for all of these decades that there's been sort of a monolithic approach to language which was the kids lined up in rows and you know the teacher was filling them up with specific kind of structures and and grammar and vocabulary you were seeing all of these different kinds of approaches and then, you know, since you were already at Y already, you understood the Y, then mm-hmm. you were just, super, you were like, you know, at a buffet. <laughs> it was like, which yes. which one of these little <laughs> meals do I want to take a bite of and try, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think if we were to come up with a giant pot of money, part of the way I would want to spend it is to actually send teachers to other schools, that that travel is super valuable, right? When you get to go to other places and see what other people are doing. There's so much that you can gain from that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, seeing it for yourself is very different than telling somebody what you saw. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. Or seeing it in a movie or, or something like you're in a Mm -hmm. film clip. Yeah. When Mm -hmm. you're, when you're there, like when you're in that second grade classroom, you were just like, (laughs) Oh my God, you know, this is crazy. So yeah. Yeah. And coming back to tell your colleagues, like, this can happen. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. There's still a lot of skepticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Darcy, I want to I wanna zoom out a little bit to include all educators of all subjects. So in one of your resource websites, you cited Matt Miller's Ditch That Textbook resource, and you wrote as a descriptor, this PD is filled with ideas of how to tap into your creativity to bring your lessons alive. And Ditch That Textbook is not specific to world languages, but rather for educators in general. But a lot of what you will hear will be directly applicable to your lesson planning. That's what you wrote. So let's say Josh, the traditional history teacher, wants to have coffee with you. um, And over coffee, he asks about ditching his textbook and moving more towards a proficiency and authentic assessments model of teaching. And I'm going to make this a little more challenging by adding (laughs) in Jackie, who joins us for this coffee talk story. And she teaches biology in the traditional way and cannot imagine, quote, ditching the textbook. So how would you, the coach, begin the conversation? Where, Where would you like this conversation to go? What should its shape be? The strategies that I learned in Ditching That Textbook really has a lot to do with engaging the students in the learning. And I think I talked about this earlier, about having students being active participants in their learning rather than passive recipients. And in Ditch That Textbook, what he does, he shares a lot of strategies that really get students involved in engaging with the content of your class. Mm -hmm. He works alongside with... Dave Burgess. And Dave Burgess is the author of Teach Like a Pirate. 
Mm, okay. And Teach Like a Pirate is also that type of book where you get your students involved and, and really working with the content and, and getting them excited about it. And ditching that textbook, you, you move away from going from page one to page 10, right? And then next, tomorrow we'll do page 11 to page 18 or whatever. Right. Um, you move away from that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't ever touch it. You could also, you know, you could use it as a reference. But how do you take that content and really make it relevant for your students? And I'm a firm believer in backwards design. And the interesting thing about backwards design is when you first hear about it, it makes a lot of sense. But trying to understand how it works, it's a work in progress. You know, it's mm-hmm. the curve, it's a steep learning curve. Well, it was for myself. Mm-hmm. But really understanding, okay, what is it that you want students to learn? How are they going to show evidence of that? And then going back and saying, now what do they need to be able to perform that? Mm-hmm. And then it, this, this this textbook teaches like a pirate. This is where their intelligence comes in and, and what they have to share because it's about building your lessons. How do you build your lessons so that they get what you need them to get so they can perform on that assessment that mm-hmm. you have decided is allowable mm-hmm. yeah, to, mm-hmm. sh- to evidence their learning? Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily so much about you need to memorize this, memorize this, memorize this, and regurgitate it. Mm-hmm. It's now it's really about how are they going to really learn this content, show it to you, so that it's not just purely memorized and regurgitated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I love about this textbook and teach like a pirate. Mm-hmm. So if you and I are sitting here and we're having this talk story, and we'll set Jackie aside for a second because that makes <laughs> it way more complicated. But, you know, I'm, I'm teaching history and I'm realizing that rather than, say, for example, wanting my kids to understand the timeline that led to the American Civil War, what I really want them to be able to do is to explain why we got into the into the civil war. And so the conversion that I'm going through in this moment listening to you is that instead of giving them a timeline of facts, what I want them to do is to say, for example, read all of the correspondence that was written by President Lincoln two weeks before the war started and to try to tease out of that correspondence the reasons that he gave or the thinking that he was going through as he was contemplating taking the country to war. I know it seems kind of cheesy, but I'm on the right track, right? In terms of ditching the textbook, right, coach? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It has to do with kind of like what I was talking about earlier, your learning targets. What is a target? Do you, is there a target that they memorize? They memorize the events or is the target that they understand or that they are able to explain why these events led to each other? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if those targets are crystal clear, Mm -hmm. then understanding what assessments will be acceptable in evidencing their learning will be easier to Mm -hmm. write. And Mm -hmm. and so once you write that assessment, then you go back and say, okay, Mm -hmm. I I need them to do this. They're going to explain to me whether it's going to be in a video or it's going to be in an essay Mm -hmm. or it's going to be in a debate. Whatever you've decided is their acceptable evidence, now you go back and say, now how am I going to get them to understand that? Right, right. 
Yeah, that's so awesome. I mean, you you know, part of the reason why I was sparked into this is because you wrote about it in grad school, and it was it was very much a kind of a light bulb moment for me as I was reading what you were saying about learning targets versus learning objectives. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I encourage our listeners to do maybe your own research. You know, Google learning targets. There's a lot out there about it, <laughs> and it's super interesting. So. That's great. That's great. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We will be back in a moment with more from Darcy Ann Baker, known as Kumu Lenani. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. As a What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast listener, I know you're curious about what's happening in Hawaii schools. This is Christy Oda, and together with National Board Certified Teachers, we launched Educators Edge a new podcast that gathers innovative educators with diverse perspectives to collaborate around a topic of their choice. There's something so special about hearing teachers talk story about the work they do to transform education for Hawaii's young learners. I invite you to listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or go to bit.ly slash educators edge to subscribe. Aloha and mahalo. everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we're back with Darcy Baker, known as Kumu Lenani, who, among many other things, mentors and coaches Hawaiian language teachers so that they might be highly effective in their proficiency-based practice. So Darcy, in this last section, I want to cover several things, I think, which might be important to our listeners. So the first is the concept of OEV Edge which empowers your campus learners and educators with a, quote, worldview and mindsets to actively shape a rapidly changing world with vision, courage, and aloha. So if I graduate from your school, Darcy, after 12 years with the OEV edge, who am I and who could I be as I grow into my future. And and I guess I'm gonna test the waters here and use a computer metaphor. What would be my OEV edge operating system as I graduate from Kamehameha Schools, Hawaii Island, then head off into my life? So OEV edge, oh, that was such a, you know, when that concept was brought to us, mm-hmm. we were for a couple of years, like, what does that mean, OEV Edge? What does it mean? And nobody would be able, would give us an exact definition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was frustrating for us because, you know, we're like, well, how are we going to make our students, you know, have that OEV Edge when we don't even know what it is? And so, you know, that trip to New Zealand was kind of part of defining what OEV Edge is and how how we get our students to understand this and and really become... I don't like this term, but become OEV edgers, mm-hmm. right? And so the way that I see OEV edge is really for us giving our students a firm foundation in who they are as Kanaka. 
whether it's in Mo'olelo, whether it's in family history, whether it's Olelo Hawaii, but really giving them a firm foundation, but with eyes out the future and out into the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Knowing that no matter what path you choose in your life, that having that Oivi, that Kanaka foundation is going to ground you, A, it's going to ground you, but it's also going to give you an insight into how you navigate your future, mm. learning from our kupuna. So what does that mean? There are so many examples out there, actually. But in, in whatever you choose to do in your future, that a, you understand that you come from a people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and of course, recognizing that our students are not pure Hawaiian, right? But as as a student at Kamehameha schools, that is where our Kuleana lands is to teach you who you are as a Hawaiian and who you are as a whole and how that's going to move you forward in whatever you choose to do and and serve your people, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And so the part I'm interested in as well is the courage part. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. I, I quoted changing world with vision, courage, and aloha. So mm-hmm. what is the practice along the journey for the student to gain that oevi edge in terms of courage? Like, I, I, I know that must be really hard to Ooh. describe to people, yeah? Yeah. Really, it's an effort on all of the part of all of our teachers, whether it's in English or in science, to really give them the the wings mm-hmm. to explore their their talents and their interests. So, you know, thinking toward like say for example, theater. Yeah. If you have a student who's interested in theater, now how do you get them to first understand that field? And how do you encourage them to use their identity mm-hmm. to explore that field mm-hmm. with a Kanaka mindset? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I mean, you know, in some respects, theater is is something pretty clear to me. I mean, it, it, for me to go to be interested in theater and actually do theater would take incredible courage on my part to get through that because I'm shy. And I'm, I know that sounds crazy, but introverted. But when I think about like, what does it mean to mm-hmm. be courageous in biology? What does it mean to be courageous in history? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. is courage in biology, you know, having the opportunity from my teacher to tackle the really thorny issue of climate change? Mm-hmm. Or in history, is it the opportunity to speak out about culture and ethnicity and things that tend to be hot button issues yeah so what i'm mm-hmm. hearing from you is that it's really incumbent upon everyone at Kamehameha schools hawaii island campus to engage the kids in learning that does present opportunities to exercise your courage am i on the right track absolutely and as kumu everybody's on a different space on the spectrum of understanding oev edge and as Kumu, you too need to have that courage, mm, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. To really, to jump into that. Because, I mean, as Kumu Olelo Hawaii, historically speaking, we've been given 
all of the kuleana to address anything Hawaiian. And that's something that we've discussed before. Like, okay, when there's something that needs to be done, they need to do a prayer. Oh, go see your kumu'ulala Hawaii. Yeah. Right? Or, you know, you need to go and research a plant. Oh, go talk to your kumu'ulala Hawaii or whatever that is, right? And it, it, it's, it's a heavy burden for us. And so having this OEV Edge platform, it's freeing for us, I guess, in a way, in, in that we're sharing this kuleana. And this kuleana of giving our students this identity and foundation and really moving them along on this path is now everybody's kuleana. Yeah. And that's so, it's it's nice for us. And we can really concentrate on, on Olala Hawaii. But like I said, like everybody's on that different spectrum. Everybody's trying to explore it and give their students ways in which they can tap into those interests and really think, how do I serve my lahui mm-hmm. through this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have students who are going off and they've, they follow law, yeah, but they want to do law and serve the lahui. So how do I practice law in the best way to serve my people? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that courage that you're talking about, courage to go out there and address those issues that affect us. Yeah. Yeah. I understood that as I went through my conversion and teaching history is that I knew that there were kids who wanted to study the law or be in the law. And so therefore it was incumbent upon me to put them in historical situations that involved the law. Mm. And, and then they had the opportunity to be sparked by it, to understand yeah. what the complexities of the law are. So I, I, I hear you loud and clear. So Darcy, down here at the very end, wow, this this time has gone by so fast. Um, I have one more question for you, and it's it's a big one. Um, I, I want to zoom up to a, a very high altitude to the you know the where the jet planes fly the thirty two thousand foot level, um, and look down on the education landscape below. And so here at the end of twenty twenty one, what are your thoughts on? the landscape of learning in Hawaii or on Hawaii Island? Wow. Yeah. We live in a world that's changing. And for educators, we, (laughs) like I'm now in that category of old timers. Mm -hmm. And as as an old timer, it's, you know, we, we tend to go like, well, we didn't need that when we were growing up, and we turned out just fine, right? Yeah. But as, as educators, we need to understand that this world is changing and that we need to adapt to that, and we need to understand our students and, and their place in, our, in this world that wasn't our world before, right? Yeah. And that's globally. When I think about Hawaii Island, oh, there's so many issues going on and so to be able to address issues current issues going on in our world i mean just taking our pandemic right Mm -hmm. it's a huge thing there's something that we never had to grow up with right and how do you navigate this for students it's opening our minds it's opening our thoughts 
to what's going on today right in front of us and knowing that this is the world that our students are going through yeah, and that we need to understand that. And it's not the world that we grew up in. And so, oh gosh, mm-hmm. for you know, as a parent having younger children, even just the vocabulary that they use, right? As a teacher, you need to navigate that. If they're talking about something, you need to know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And it might sound like an innocent word, but when you find out what they're really talking about, it's like, mm, wait. <laughs> yeah. So keeping up with their music, keeping up with their language, keeping mm-hmm. up with what's going on on social media, you know, those are things that for for an older teacher it's a learning curve for us, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and then being able to to exist in their world, even though it's not, you know, not not what we grew up in, but being able to grow, to exist in their world and adapt our teaching to that, that's the key. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did an interview a few weeks ago with Wes Adkins, who teaches at James Campbell High School out on West Oahu. And this is what he talked about. In fact, at the very end of the interview, he talked about meeting the kids where they're at. That was his mm-hmm. phrase. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is that yep. we need to understand the world that they're living in. If you're if you're a chemistry teacher, Darcy, and you're still having your kids just every day go to page 35 and memorize the, you know, the table of elements, yeah. and you're not acknowledging what's going on in the world today yeah. with them, then you know, you're not you're not giving them the OEVH, right? You're just <laughs> right. you're just not. And also I was I was also thinking, you know. That what a special moment because a few uh, weeks ago, our Department of Education for the state named its 2022 State Teacher of the Year, and it's mm-hmm. Whitney Aragaki from Waikia High School, and her emphasis in teaching is in place and culture. And I'm like, we've reached a magic moment, Darcy. You know, <laughs> it's not it's not necessarily the teacher who's you know kids are all going to college or you know are following yeah. that track mm-hmm. or or getting great test scores or sterling scholars or all of that. It's actually somebody who's connecting her kids to the place and culture of Hawaii Island. And what, mm-hmm. how, how awesome is that, right? I mean, I just think, yes. yeah, yeah. So that's great. So Darcy, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I hope you and your family and extended family remain safe and healthy as we transition Mahalo. to the new year 2022. I'm looking forward to good things in 2022. Yes, I am too. (laughs) Take care. Mahalo Nui. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be virtual community 
by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.